0: In the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Please be seated. I simply cannot begin to get inside the mind of someone who would take up a rifle to take as many lives as possible. I can't begin to understand the hate or the alienation or the distorted mental state. But I do want to take a moment to talk about the value of human life. Anyone who takes up a deadly weapon makes an assertion about the value of human life. Now a gun is not the only way to take life... ...but it does amplify this question of what our lives are worth... ...when they can be taken so recklessly and so quickly. We as a culture say something about the value of life... ...when we fail to pursue even the most basic limitations... ...on access to some of the most frightening weapons... And as tragic as any mass shooting is, far and away the highest casualty rate comes from guns comes from self-inflicted gunshot wounds. That too is about the value of human life. When someone has so lost their sense of worthiness, they have lost their sense of belovedness before God that they would take their own life. And the same thing is true of a culture of cities that cannot get on top of the epidemics of homicides. That, too, is about how we value human life. How we create cities of opportunity and prosperity and dignity. Or when we fail to do so. When faced with senseless violence like this, we have to begin by remembering that each and every single one of us, each child, each grocery store customer, each police officer, each parent, each teacher, each, even those of us who have fallen into those deep pits of despair and loneliness, each of us is profoundly held and known and valued as children of God. That is what gives us value. Not what we do, not what we make, not how we worship, not where we shop, but who God created us to be. We are each made holy and in the image of God. And as Christians, we know that Jesus especially loved the children, the poor, the marginalized. The ones who are perpetually targeted for violence. The most important part of our humanity is this. That we are each created and loved by God. So I'm thinking about value today. I'm thinking about our value, and not just because of the terrible news of the past week, but because of Scripture, because the, the passage in Acts this morning is all about our worth and our value in a broken world. In this, in this little pocket of Philippi, where, where Paul and Silas are doing their thing, what we see is an economy of ownership where the value of human life is filtered and distorted through the lens of master slave relationships. Everybody knows it. That's just the way of the world, and nobody does anything about it. We start with that young woman who has the power of divination and truth telling. She was, as we are told very clearly, she was a slave girl. She was owned by someone. She was an earner. She was an asset whose magic tricks provided cash flow to somebody in the ownership class. And curiously, though, she is the one who actually sees Paul and Silas for who they are. It doesn't seem like anybody else quite does. And so, but she, she sees them, but she only understands them... ...through the one framing that she and everybody else in town seems to understand. She call, when she calls them slaves of the Most High God... ...she essentially says to them, so what kind of slave are you? Whose slave are you? Who do you belong to? Here in this town, humans are commodities... And that question really means, so what is, what is your worth? She knew her place. She knew her value. Now, she, she wasn't hurting anybody, right? People, people wanted this. Folks were paying out to hear their fortunes read. So I don't know if this was just entertainment or, or cheap therapy or, or religion or what. But she did zero in on Paul... And she chases him around for a few days. And and don't get the impression that there is a whole lot of dignity in this. Paul just got like, oh, would you just quit annoying me? And then he, he did an exorcism on her. And the demon was cast out. But you know what? She was suddenly free from possession. But not, according to Ronald Cole Turner, free of being a possession. She was still a slave. She still belonged to somebody. She just wasn't earning anymore. But so Paul had now thumbed his nose at the whole economy of ownership, and we know that that will not do, and he he had totally busted the hustle. So what happens? He and Silas were beaten severely for this. So this is violent. Then they were put in stocks, which is very painful, and then locked away in the innermost Sell as far away from possible, so they can't make any more trouble. So they can't cause any more problems. So they can't do any more damage. Now, while we're on the subject of jail, let's take just a moment to think about what incarceration means in an ownership economy. Jerusha Matson Neal reads this story and notices that there's something missing from it a story where somebody goes to jail, there's something missing that we might think is essential to this. A crime. He didn't do anything. That's obvious. Nobody's even hiding this. She writes, When the slave girl's owners realize that their revenue stream has been disrupted, they go to the magistrates with a complaint that seems unrelated. They accuse Paul and Silas of disrupting the peace... They name them as Jews, cultural outsiders who are advocating customs that are unlawful for the Romans. Oddly, she writes, economics comes nowhere near their argument. So they, they knew how to play this, right? They knew how to work social media. They said, why complain about cash when culture and custom make a much better story? Neil points out that Paul and Silas they, all, they aren't imprisoned because they break the law. They are imprisoned. They, they are imprisoned because they are imprisonable people, vulnerable people who threaten the bottom line of the powerful, and that lands them in jail. And it's a dark night in that prison. Now maybe we don't all know what it's like to be incarcerated. But we do know what despair feels like. And I know we feel a little more despair this week than we did just a few weeks ago. But Paul and Silas make it through the night. And they make it through the night by singing. By remembering their prayers. And by surrendering themselves to God despite The awfulness of their situation. And when the earthquake comes and their bonds are broken, there is yet one more liberation to be had. And that's the jailer. The jailer prepares to take his own life. Why? Because he's failed his masters. He knew his value. He knew his place. Which meant suddenly with the jail open and the inmates having escaped, he had no value left. But Paul meets him in that moment with love and forgiveness. And actually introduces him to what God sees in him. And that changes his life. So all through this story, I've I've introduced you to all the characters in this passage from Acts. But all through it, I think we get get a distorted picture of what it means to be human. Human. In every other sentence, somebody seems to own somebody else. And they all know their place, and they all know their value, and nobody can break free. So if we look at our world today... ...do we see some parallels? I hope we do. But we have to ask, so what then? How can we break free of this distorted way of being in community... ...that delivers unto us so much repeated tragedy and heartbreak... ...and keeps us from making even the most minimal progress... ...on things that seem pretty obvious? Well, I, I see in this story three places to begin and it helps that they all begin with the same letter exorcism evangelism and self-emptying exorcism evangelism and self-emptying I don't know about you but I'm grateful to Luke for thinking ahead on how we might interpret this in English I'm grateful for that The story revolves first around something we're not comfortable talking about, understandably. It revolves around an exorcism that disrupts the whole economy. This was God intervening through Paul. This was divine action that happened, that was beyond all skill and certainly beyond all thoughts and prayers. That woman was possessed by something evil, something evil that produced dividends. For good, for some fine, upstanding folk, by the way. But without God, nobody could do anything about it. Think about this: if a whole, if a human body is septic, you need a lot more than a healthy exercise diet and a, than a healthy diet. You need really good medicine, and you need really strong prayer. You need both. As sad and hopeless as the dominance of guns is in our country. I believe that we can make progress. but we know that those who lose money in that exchange... ...will hit that culture and custom button pretty hard... ...because they know that it works. Well, we need to speak out and advocate... ...but we also need to pray. Because there's something evil here... ...that's beyond our skill... ...and it needs to be cast out... Guns may have once been tools of independence and liberty. But to me, they're looking a lot more like instruments of enforcement and ownership. And we need a little exorcism to get free. The second step is evangelism. Paul meets the propaganda of the culture warriors with good news. That's what evangelism is. ...bearing and being the good news of the gospel. And I know that's hard sometimes. I know it's hard not to get lost in despair. I know the temptations of contempt. But remember, we must first and foremost love each and every one of our neighbors. Paul found in those midnight hymns the resource of love that he needed. Oh, Oh, he still got annoyed... Let's not forget that he still went to the marketplace and totally broke it. But remember also that love in the face of disaster is what made him an evangelist. Love in the face of disaster is what made him an evangelist. And in those moments of song, locked away in the darkest cell of the jail, Paul emptied himself as Jesus had done. He lost track of his despair and he seems to have lost track of the jail sale altogether. So that when those walls literally fall away, Paul seems to have forgotten that they were there in the first place. And with those walls shattered and there's literally no way to contain the prisoners anymore, the jailer starts starts to take his own life when Paul steps, I don't know, from behind a bush or something and almost seems to say which one of us is truly free?" ...and which one of us is imprisoned. Paul had emptied himself. He clearly had the power to change things... ...and not just the reality of that marketplace... ...but also the life of the jailer. Because Paul, as a follower of Jesus... ...saw in each person... ...a value that none of the rest of them could see... They saw only who owned them. Paul saw who created them and who loved them. And oh, how we could change the world if we could all see our our siblings in that way and see how our inability to see that is what keeps us from healing. So exorcism, evangelism, and self-emptying. It helps, I think, to keep us from despair because it drains that ownership economy of its power over us. But I wish it could be more. I wish this could be a three-step path to ending gun violence or racism or warfare or any of the wicked problems that steal our dignity and destroy so many lives. Yet we can start by dismantling the claims of a worldview that tells us that our value and the value of every human being is anything less than what God created us to be, is anything less than the beloved image of our creator. We must name and call out the artifacts of that ownership economy. Guns, jails, racism, exploitation, trafficking, you name it all of these are profoundly contrary to what God envisions for us. Despite what we see and hear, time and time again, we must hold fast to the good news of our faith in Jesus. We are made not for violence, not for slavery, but not even for ownership, but for love.